everyone. My name is Josh Scroggins. I pastor New Beginnings Family. Just wanted to say thank you for joining our podcast and welcome. We hope the following message will be encouraging, will inspire you to grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about us or would like to support our ministry financially, you can visit our website at www.nbfamily.net. And as always, for all you do to support us, thank you. God bless you and enjoy the message. Hey, 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 welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, We are starting a brand new series called The Battle. And in this episode, we're going to launch into that series. It is going to be focused uh, purely around spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. In these next several episodes, we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare. We're going to look at the spiritual war that is raging on around us at all times. And we're going to explore what it means to struggle against rulers, powers, forces of darkness, and spiritual forces in heavenly places. We're going to look at oppression, strongholds, faith, prayer, and so much more. If you have been feeling like the enemy has been hitting you hard lately, there's a reason. When outpouring came, it's this big event that we had here. Uh, if you are listening and you were not a part of that event, I'm sorry. Uh, you you missed out. Uh, go back on our Facebook page, watch the services. At least you'll get something out of it. But I'll say this. When outpouring came and we had that event, I believe that spiritual shockwaves were sent through this area. The Holy Spirit showed up in a mighty way. And the power of God hit this place in a way that shook the gates of hell around us. The enemy has been struggling to fight back, to keep us off balance, to keep us distracted, to keep us from moving forward, because he knows that if he cannot succeed at that, he's going to lose this area. And I believe that with everything in me. So over the next several weeks, we're going to go on a journey. We're going to look at the battles that led to the Israelites getting to the promised land and conquering it. We're going to learn just how spiritual war is fought. We're going to come through this equipped to fight that kind of war with power and with boldness. So buckle up because we are going to take a trip back to Egypt. Now, the story I'm going to share is a commonly known one. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. They call out to God. God speaks to Moses from a burning bush to go free them. Pharaoh refuses to let the people go, and so God sends 10 different plagues on Egypt. After the last plague, Egypt is uh, gives up. Israel is released from their slavery. All right, it's a well-known story. There have been many movies made about it. I still think Prince of Egypt is probably the best one. Uh, but, you know, that's, uh, that's subjective, I guess. Uh, chances are, though, that you know the story well. You've probably seen at least one of these movies. But what if I told you that there was far more going on in this story than most people realize? What if I told you that what we as Westerners see as 10 very random plagues were actually targeted attacks directly aimed at the spiritual strongholds within Egypt? What if I told you that the Israelites were not the only nation enslaved and that the plagues were not just to free the Israelites, but also to free the Egyptians? These plagues and even one of the signs leading up to them 
were direct attacks on the spiritual strongholds binding the people of Egypt. In fact, God declares the purpose of letting the people of Egypt see who he was. Right? He says that the purpose of letting them see this, right, see the, the Israelites delivered, the purpose of all of this was so that Egypt would see who was really God. Check out this. In Exodus 7, 3 to 5, it says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my armies, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I extend my hand over Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. There's a very important word there. It's a three-letter word. It is the word the. Now that is important because Egypt believed in uh, many gods, right? They, they were polytheistic. They believed in a hierarchy. They believed in a pantheon of gods. And so God did not say, I am going to show Egypt that I am a god. He said, I'm going to show them that I am the God. The purpose of the plagues was not to punish Egypt. It was not to show Israel who God was. They already knew that. It was to remove the spiritual blinders from the eyes of the Egyptians so that they would know that he is the Lord. God actually wanted to demonstrate his power over other false gods. He wanted to show that he was not just a God. He was the God. And the only way you can be the God is to show that there are no other gods. And so he, he sets out to demonstrate his power over other false gods. And there's, there's other precedent in the Old Testament for this, by the way. There's other precedent for this. Uh, think, for instance, Elijah up on Mount Carmel, right? Uh, and he is, is, is uh, set up a challenge for God and Baal, right, to, to send fire. And whichever God sends fire is actually really God, right? It's a, it's a direct contest of gods. Here, there's another one um, in, in a town called Ashdod when the Philistines had gotten a hold of the Ark of the Covenant and bad things were happening to them and they kept playing hot potato with this Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> well, in one of the cities, they took the Ark of the Covenant and they put it into the temple of Dagon, right? This is in Ashdod. They put him in the temple of Dagon. It was one of their deities. And they came in the next day and the statue of Dagon had fallen over and was bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. So they picked him back up. They set the statue back up. They went about their day. The next day they came in and again, the statue had fallen and bowed before the Ark of the Covenant. This time its head and its hands had broken off. So we're, we're looking at some precedent here. God often did this where he would demonstrate his power over other false gods. This was not just because God needed an ego trip. He knew there weren't other gods. He was doing this to open people's eyes, to show them who he was because he loves them. He didn't want them spiritually bound. He wanted them to see who he was. Now we're going to come back to that later. But let me, let me start with this question. How was it that God accomplished the task? If he was going to show them that he is the God, not just a God, how was it that he was going to do that? Well, he systematically demonstrated his dominance over very, various aspects of their spiritual hierarchy. 
We're going to go through this quickly. There's a lot of real estate to cover here. There's a, there's a lot of a scripture. Um, but I want to show you just how powerfully this whole thing would have been from the eyes of the Egyptians. So imagine for just a moment that you live in Egypt. You're, you're an Egyptian. You're just a normal Egyptian. You've heard your whole life that Pharaoh is a god. Uh, the reincarnation of the god Horus, who is the god of protection, among other things. On Pharaoh's crown is a golden cobra, the symbol for the goddess Wajit, the protector of lower Egypt. And you've learned your whole life to honor the many gods because each of them has control over various aspects of your life. You've always believed that these gods controlled things like the flooding of the Nile, the earth, the weather, the sun, and even life and death itself. Yet all your life, worship of these gods has left you empty. You've prayed to these gods, but your prayers have always gone unanswered. Yet you continue to believe because you don't know any better. Meanwhile, you constantly see the slaves of your people, the Hebrews, talking about their one God who is supposed to be God of everything. And you think to yourself, well, if their God was real and yours was false, they would be the ones in, uh, in, in charge and you would be the one in chains. Now, fast forward a bit. Moses has already asked Pharaoh to release his slaves, right? The Hebrews, let my people go, right? There's that famous line. And Pharaoh responded by increasing the workload on them instead. Now Moses has returned with a new message from God. In Exodus 7, verses 9 to 12, this is God uh, speaking here. He says, when Pharaoh says to you, or speaks to you, saying, work a miracle, you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh so it may turn into a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and so they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it turned into a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they too, the soothsayer priests of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron, his staff, swallowed their staffs. <clears throat> now, don't get caught up on how Pharaoh's men duplicated the miracle. Um, I, I have a theory on that. I've done some reading on it, and... Um, I, you know, I'll say that it's it's likely that they probably had some snakes that they had charmed, they had hypnotized into becoming rigid, so that they appeared to be like a staff. They were just stiff. They were hypnotized, and when they threw these snakes down on the ground, that the snakes kind of woke up and began slithering around. Uh, it's likely that's probably what happened. I don't I don't think they actually had the same power that God has to, to transform and to create. But, you know, if you if you want to believe that they were somehow able to do that, that's fine. Uh, but let's not get hung up on that. What is what is actually important here is the symbolism. See, Pharaoh had on his head a golden cobra. Uh, that symbolized the protection of the goddess Wajit, the protector of lower Egypt. Of all the miracles that God could have chosen, God chose to use the symbol of the protector over lower Egypt, right? The goddess protecting Pharaoh. And, and there's more, uh, by the way. To the ancient Egyptians, a snake swallowing other snakes, it was actually a known religious reference. See, in Egyptian mythology, the powerful primordial snake, the god Nebuku, is considered the original snake, and worship of him was especially popular during this time in Egypt's history. Uh, according to the ancient Egyptian mythological accounts, there's a, a, a text called Coffin Text Spells. That's their writings. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar swallowed seven cobras, 
giving him power against harm from any magic. Now, the Hebrew snake swallowing the Egyptian snakes in the name of the God of Israel would have been a startling display of supremacy. Now, remember, Pharaoh was thought to be the reincarnation of the God Horus. Right, Horus was the God of protection. Pharaoh wore a cobra on his crown, symbolizing protection from Wadjet, who was known as the protector of Lower Egypt. By using a snake to demonstrate supremacy, God was in essence saying that Egypt actually had no protection, that their protection was not real. It was smoke and mirrors. It was fake. It was false. That the protection that they had lived under the whole time or that they had believed they were living under the whole time was not actually real. God removed their protection. And what followed was proof of that. Now, we're going to go through the 10 plagues of Egypt. And for time's sake, I'm not going to read them. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you this. If you want to follow along with me, you can. You can start in Exodus chapter 7 and just kind of go through these. Um, if you want to to find these accounts and just kind of read, I'll, I'll reference a few verses here and there. But I, I'm not going to I'm not going to read them just for time's sake. <clears throat> the first plague was this. It was uh, the river to blood. The first plague was that God um, turned the Nile River to blood. Now, there's different ways of interpreting these miracles. Okay, there, there's different ways of interpreting them. One is to interpret these miracles as being supernatural. In other words, these are things that that God did that come out of the realm of nature, right? They, they defy the laws of nature. Um, the second way of interpreting these miracles is that they were hyper-natural. In other words, that God uh, used nature itself in even extreme ways in a couple of cases, but used nature itself to do these miracles. Um, you can interpret that either way. Uh, it really doesn't, it really doesn't matter. Um, I tend to lean more towards the, uh, the second explanation, um, for at least most of these, uh, there's, there's a couple, I think that, that appear to be supernatural. Um, but what we do know is the very first plague is described as the Nile river turning to blood. Now, there's a couple of explanations for this. One is that it literally turned to real blood. It's that it's just a description. Another is that by saying the Nile turned to blood, it was describing the way that it looked, that the water became red. It became uh, a, a blood red. Um, and that's how it would have been described is that the Nile changed and it became red like blood. And it would have been written like that. Um, it actually has been recorded in Egypt's history that the Nile River at times turned red, right? That they dealt with red water and, and a lot of the symptoms were very similar, uh, likely due to like a red algae that kills fish. It, it makes the water undrinkable. Um, I think it's probably likely that's what happened um, to a much bigger scale than had ever been seen before or since. Um, just given by the reaction of the uh, of the Egyptians, right? You would think that if, if this was real blood that they would have... Um, been horrified and that there would be, you know, that type of thing. And, and it more seems like the, uh, the Egyptians were very frustrated and exhausted because they had to find water elsewhere. Um, but again, you don't, you know, you could, you could go either way on it. What matters is this, <clears throat> that the first plague that came struck the most important resource in a resource in Egypt. It struck the Nile. This was a targeted attack on a false God, particularly the God Osiris. 
Osiris was the god of the Nile, and in Egyptian mythology, the Nile was said to be the bloodstream of Osiris. He wasn't the only god that was attacked, though. Uh, for instance, there were other gods that were targeted by this attack, this, this plague as well. Uh, Knum was the god of the source of the Nile, and Hopi was the god who presided over annual flooding. All of these gods would have been targeted by this attack. Now, this is one, again, that the, uh, the Egyptians' magicians, right, as priests, this is the one that they also duplicated. They were able to change the water into blood. And this is why, again, I kind of lean more towards this being um, a reference to the color of the water and the, the um, inability for, uh, for it to be used and, and drank. Uh, again, I, I think probably this is, this is a, um, a red algae. However, again, you can, you can go however you want. You, you can believe that these magicians were somehow able to transform their staves into snakes and they were able to change regular water into blood. Um, that, that's fine. But we need to understand that this, this symbolism here was massive. It was a direct attack on the god Osiris. The second plague that actually happened was frogs. Now, this uh, does make sense if you think about it. There's, a, there's several of these plagues that when you look at them, the order of them makes sense, right? I mean, if the Nile River was suddenly changed in a way that the frogs living in it could no longer live in that water, they would have left the water. Well, where are they going to go, right? They, they come flooding out of the Nile. Well, this is really interesting. Uh, there is an Egyptian god called Heket. She's a goddess of childbirth and midwifery, particularly protection over women during childbirth. Now, this is this is crazy. Uh, when you understand the history of Egypt and the Hebrews, <clears throat> in particular, you you need to know a little bit of the backstory here. That that Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And the reason for that is because Pharaoh had demanded that all newborn males be drowned by the midwives in the Nile. Now, in the second plague, Pharaoh is inundated with these symbols, right? That, remember, the frog is the symbol of Heket. Heket is the goddess of childbirth, midwifery, as well as resurrection. So remember, all of these babies have been thrown into the Nile. And now Pharaoh has all of these symbols of childbirth, midwives, and resurrection literally pouring back out of the Nile as this plague. The, trust me when I tell you the symbolism was not lost on Pharaoh. The next plague that happened was dust to lice. Now at this point, the, the frogs are, are dying, right? They've been out. The, the plague is over. You've got a lot of these dead frogs everywhere. It's beginning to stink. The third plague is dust to lice. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated as lice is only uh, used in this biblical context. So the exact identity of this critter is unclear. We don't know exactly what, uh, what insect we're talking about. It doesn't necessarily mean lice. Uh, even though it's translated at that, it's, it's likely it is lice. But other translations describe it as uh, fleas or sand flies, um, gnats, ticks, mosquitoes. The Hebrew word indicates it's a creature that digs into the skin, whatever it is. Uh, regardless of whatever the uh, creature is, right? Whatever the insect actually is, regardless of that, 
The ground literally came alive with the parasites. Uh, this plague would have been an affront to, among others, Geb, right? The, the Egypt's chief earth god, right? He was the god over the dust of the earth. He should have stopped the, the dust of the earth from becoming lice, and yet that's not what happened. Um, <clears throat> but this also was aimed at another part of Egypt's society. In particular, we're dealing with spiritual strongholds that these plagues were targeting. Well, one of those strongholds had to deal with the priests and the religious leaders. In fact, that that's the magicians that had been duplicating some of these miracles, right? Egypt's religious leaders, they went to extreme lengths to keep themselves clean and pure. Um, and, and I mean extreme lengths. I was, I was reading this last week about some of the lengths they went to, and it was pretty, pretty incredible. They shaved every part of their body, so they had no hair, uh, including eyebrows, even their eyelashes, right? Anything that could host parasites shaved off. Uh, they took multiple baths. I think it was two baths in the day, two at night. Um, they took uh, great pains to wear very specific clothing. Uh, I mean, they were, they were paranoid for whatever reason. They were paranoid about getting plagues plagues about getting lice and so this this plague now where they are inundated with these these lice um it's amazing that at this plague the magicians finally admitted defeat and they told pharaoh this is the finger of god the fourth plague was swarms now again it makes sense to me um i mean you've got the, the water of the Nile has changed in a way that the frogs can't live in it anymore so the frogs come up on uh, onto dry land that God ends that plague and those frogs die. Well, now you've got all these dead frogs everywhere. Well, if the frogs are dead, right, then all the things that they would normally eat are, are thriving right now, right? And, and it stinks. Um, so in come the flies, right? Here comes plague number four, swarms of flies. Now, flies and beetles, they were popular charms in ancient Egypt. Flies actually adorned ritualistic objects. Uh, soldiers and leaders, they had a, a pendant known as the Order of the Golden Fly, Right. Flies were actually a symbol of determination and bravery. I mean, think about how often you will have a fly buzz around your head and no matter how much you swat at it, it just keeps on coming back. Right. You are much bigger than that fly. You could kill that fly if you ever could catch it, but it keeps coming back at you. Right. And so this this concept was that the fly was a symbol of determination and bravery. Uh, now, the original text uh, in, in the Bible doesn't use the word flies. Right. It simply refers to them as swarms. And based on what we what we have uh, uh, translated from ancient Greek Septuagint, most scholars identify this insect as something called a dog fly. Um, now, there's there's different things that are, that are similar to it, but basically, a dog fly has a very painful bite. Uh, think of it like a horse fly, a house fly, a gadfly. Um, there's there's types of flies that bite, and these can uh, these can be incredibly deadly because they carry diseases. Um, one one particular disease that they carry is actually called anthrax. That might sound familiar uh, to some of you guys who uh, who have been around a, a little while. Um, but anthrax is a very 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 deadly disease, and they are carried. Are uh, these dog flies actually carry anthrax? Uh, Psalm 78:45 says that the swarms literally devoured the Egyptians, right? So these things are biting like crazy. These are no normal flies. Now, there's, there's various Egyptian deities that were associated with flies and insects. Uh, these include the goddess Wadjet, um, who was interpreted as uh, kind of a, um, 
a wasp. It's a type of wasp that uh, injects, I believe, injects the young through a stinger. Um, uh, there's a couple more called uh, Inaset uh, or Iusaset uh, and Kepri, both of whom were depicted with uh, the head of a beetle as their head. Uh, it was said in Egyptian mythology that bees actually came from the tears of the sun god Ra. Now, if you've got these swarms and they're biting everything like crazy and they're carrying anthrax with them, then it makes sense. Here comes the next plague, which is death of the livestock, right? It, it could make sense that one way that maybe God did this is through an outbreak of a plague of anthrax from these livestock that have been bitten by these anthrax carrying dog flies. Uh, we don't know. I don't know for sure if that's how it happened or not. But again, the order of these is, is very interesting, right? It, it's just it's very interesting to me. Um, however you look at it, it, there are a couple of Egyptian deities that were targeted by this plague. Um, the first was the cow goddess Hathor, said to be the mother of Pharaoh. Egyptian art actually often depicted Pharaoh suckling from the udder of Hathor. But another famous deity was called the Apis bull, right? A son of Hathor, a manifestation of the king, was said to be um, this this uh, representation of uh, a god called Ptah, which was the god of of kings, right? This this bull, right? They only let one of them live at one time, right? So only one such physical bull could exist at a time, and once that bull died, it was mourned almost as if the pharaoh himself had died. There was a whole cult uh, around this particular bull. Um, there there was a whole bunch of people that just worshipped this living bull. Uh, it was said to be the manifestation of the king. It was directly tied to Pharaoh. Um, <clears throat> when the when the Apis bull dies, they would actually mourn it like Pharaoh had died. They would mummify this thing. They would put it into a sarcophagus at times that weighed up to 60 tons. Verse 6 tells us that all of the livestock died. So if all of them died, that would include the Apis bull. If the Apis bull died, this is now a tremendous blow to the Egyptian society because this is now the death of a god. They've just watched one of their gods die in front of their eyes. It's tragic. The Egyptians considered the Israelite manner, by the way, of handling livestock, considered it blasphemous considered it an abomination, right? It's Genesis 46, 34. They, they thought the way that the Israelites handled livestock was a blasphemous abomination. So for the Egyptians to see all of their cattle die while every Israelite cow was spared, it would have been distressing. The next thing that happens is another plague. Again, to me, it makes sense. If you've got lice and everything going up, all kinds of uncleanliness happening. Right, the Niles turned to blood. You've got frogs everywhere that have now died. You got a lot of smell everywhere. Right, it, it's very unsanitary. You've got a lot of this stuff going on, and then the sixth plague, boils. This epidemic of boils was an affront to numerous Egyptian deities. Uh, for instance, one of them was Sekhmet, the goddess of epidemics and healing. Another god, Thoth, the god of medical knowledge. Isis, the goddess of healing. Nephthys, the goddess of health. But it was also an affront to the much-prized Egyptian doctors, famous in the ancient world for their knowledge in medicine. In fact, one of those doctors, Imhotep, became deified as the god of medicine. 
The seventh plague that came was hail and fire. This plague utterly destroyed everything and everyone not protected by a substantial shelter. The sky goddess, Newt, who was supposed to protect the land from heavenly destruction, was evidently missing. So was her father, Shu, the calming god of the atmosphere. That atmosphere was not calm. This plague would have struck at not only their crops, not only uh, their, the people that were pummeled by this, but it actually, this particular plague struck at their beliefs surrounding the afterlife. Remember, these are direct attacks on spiritual strongholds. The reference to fire is noticeable here, that there was hail and fire. Now, you can interpret that a couple of ways. I think oftentimes when we think of fire from heaven, um, we picture like meteors, big flaming balls uh, coming down. Maybe that's what it was. Uh, but but fire from heaven in ancient times was a pretty, a pretty common description of lightning, which would have made sense going with the hail. Uh, whatever it is, we know that, that this hail and fire, you know, broke trees, right? Lightning does that. That's why, why I think it, it was possibly lightning. But regardless of what it is, what we know is this. In the Egyptian belief system, to be incinerated was considered the worst of all punishments. Because without a body, there was nothing to mummify. And if you were not mummified, you got no afterlife. In fact, not even just the fire, the hail would have been a problem. Right? The damage to victims by hail would have been problematic. These hailstones were, were breaking branches off of trees. They were, they were killing things. And since Egyptians went to such great lengths to ensure that dead bodies were preserved as intact as possible, the hail would have been a problem. This afterlife infliction was actually made worse, even, even more, by the destruction of a primary crop that verse 31 tells us about, and that is flax. Because flax was essential for wrapping mummies. This plague targeted their belief in the afterlife and their security in the afterlife. In essence, God just canceled their afterlife program. Then comes plague number eight, locust. You know, the interesting thing is that plagues of locusts are not uncommon in the Middle East and Africa. But what what happened here in Egypt on this day was another level entirely. With this plague, all remaining plant life, right, including new ones, right, that, that were beginning to maybe weren't quite emerged when the hail happened. Maybe they were just below the surface, so they didn't get taken out by the hail. There's just little bits of crop, and then it finally begins to emerge. It survived the hail. It survived the fire. It's just starting to emerge. Well, now here come the locusts. Whatever was not taken out by the hail and fire was taken out by the locusts. It was devoured. This, this plague struck at a number of crop deities, including the grain gods, Nepr, Nepri, Henem, uh, Renetet, sorry, Renetet, as well as Isis and Set, two gods responsible for protecting the nation's crops. With the loss of their livestock earlier and now the loss of all their crops, the Egyptians faced the prospect of starvation, which is especially distressing when they have also lost their afterlife program. At this point, all seemed lost to the Egyptians. But if they were holding out hope that their God of all gods 
would finally defend them and fight against this God of the Hebrews. If they were holding on hope to that, then plague number nine struck down that hope. See, among all of Egypt's gods, none was as renowned and worshipped as the sun god Ra or Amun-Ra, the all-powerful god of the sun. In fact, this god was so highly revered that one pharaoh was known to have banned any worship of any other god besides Ra. He was considered to be over all gods. Now, if you're not familiar with Egyptian mythology, then you can think of Greek mythology. Think of Zeus, right? Kind of like Zeus. Zeus is the, the king of the gods. Ra was over all gods. He was the most powerful. This ninth plague was a direct assault on Ra. Now, what's interesting is from a Western perspective, when I first read this and before I really understood the, the symbolism this last plague didn't seem like a big deal to me. I mean, especially compared to all the other ones. I mean, you think about all of the, all of the other plagues. I mean, you've got, you've got all your animals dying. You've got the water turning to blood. You've got the whole land filled with frogs. You've got, you got all kinds of biting insects flying all over the place. You've got gnats coming all. I mean, it, all of that seems just horrible. Hail and fire from the sky. And then that all leads up to an eclipse. That all leads up to the sun going dark. It all leads up to just a longer night. The darkness just doesn't seem like a big deal. Unless you understand that that sun represented the ultimate God to the Egyptians. It was a direct assault on Ra. God was showing himself to be supreme over the most supreme God in the Egyptian pantheon. By the way, this was also a warning shot to Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh, whose name was Ramesses, which literally means the son of Ra. The son of the sun. And now God had defeated Ra. At this point, it should have been enough. God had demonstrated his supremacy, his authority over everything. But it was not. And so the time came for the final plague. Plague number 10, the death of the firstborn. This final plague was an attack on everything in one final stroke from Pharaoh to the commoners, to a rat, and any and all gods that represented them. See, the, the death of the firstborn was not just humans. It was animals, too. That means that the Egyptian god of the mouse was judged when the firstborn mouse died. The Egyptian god of the cat of the dog, of the cow, of the goat and sheep, the Egyptian god of the frog and the fish, the Egyptian god of the dancers and the musicians and the merchants, the Egyptian gods of the farmers, the Egyptian gods of the priests, all of these gods that were supposed to be protecting those classes 
All of them were judged because all of those were hit with this final plague. The Pharaoh and his family were considered demigods to the Egyptians. They were revered as part God and part human, the offspring of the gods themselves. Pharaoh and his family were supposed to be untouchable to the plight of common mortals. And so with this final plague, God struck down the final God family of Egypt. Let's take a look here at how this began because I think this is uh, I think this is highly important I want to talk application Exodus 3 7 to 8 it says and the Lord said I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt I've heard their outcry because they're taskmasters and I'm aware of their sufferings So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. So let's talk application. Israel was in bondage, but so were the Egyptians. The spiritual eyes of the Egyptians were blinded. God went to war to deliver Israel, but he could have delivered them without all these plagues. He could have come in and just killed all the Egyptians. He could have just teleported them, right? Just just transported them somewhere else. God could have done this in a lot of different ways. And as I was praying about this leading up to this message, I felt like God telling me, it's not what I did, it's why I did it. Here's what I believe God led me to understand about this. God chose these specific plagues so that he could deliver his people in a way that their oppressors could see and understand it. As we begin this series on spiritual warfare, I want to tell you that even though you may be oppressed right now, do not stop calling out to God for deliverance. Even though you might feel like you are being pressed on, and prodded and abused and attacked, do not stop calling out to God for deliverance because deliverance is coming. And when God delivers you, he will do it in a way that others will see it and know that he is God. In fact, he will take the very things the enemy has been using to attack you and he will use those things to deliver you. The enemy had bound up the people in Egypt in a spiritual bondage by using things like the Nile, using things like the sun, using things like the weather, using those types of things to inflict them with spiritual bondage. And it was in those very things that God used that showed who he was. He freed Israel with the very things that the enemy was using as a tool of captivity. Are you being oppressed in your thoughts? I believe God's going to turn those thoughts around. He's going to use those and change the way that you think in a way that will set you free. You've been oppressed in your family, maybe in your marriage or with your, 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 your kids, maybe with your extended family. God's going to turn your family around. He's going to use the very tools of the enemy against him. Been oppressed in your finances. God's going to turn those around. 
You've been attacked because of an addiction. You just wait. God's going to turn that addiction into a testimony. God is not only going to set you free. See, he, he is, is not just in it to just set you free. He is wanting to set you free in a way that it makes a statement so that when he does it, others can see what he's doing in your life and that they too will know that he is God. So don't stop crying out. God is hearing everything and he is preparing your deliverance. Don't give up. Don't stop calling out because God hears it. Deliverance is coming and it's coming in a way that will give you a testimony. It's coming in a way that others will see the power of God moving in your life. So don't give up. Keep looking forward. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us at New Beginnings Family. We appreciate you listening and hope that the message was encouraging, inspiring, challenging, that ultimately it brings you closer to Jesus Christ. If you have any questions for us or would like to get a hold of us, you can reach out to us at www.nbfamily.net. Thank you so much. We love you. Have an amazing day. And thank you for all your support. We'll see you next time.